morning and welcome to Harvest Bible Church. Yes, thank you, God, for our eyes to see, to see, to see His Word before us, and uh, may God convict us today. By the way, uh, gentlemen, men, we've got our men's Bible study tonight at 645. I hope you can uh, be there with us, 645 to 745. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus has made all kinds of, of uh, I would say, examples of prayer desires, man's desires. We see in the first part of 18, a woman whose life is filled with injustice, begging a local judge who doesn't like her, nor does he acknowledge that there is a God. But in her persistence, he gives her what she persistently asks for. And Jesus said, take that example. And will not a loving God who does exist and who loves you, grant the request for those who seek justice day and night. And there it is. The, the answered prayer is we will all get justice. All those, those poor folks who are right now held prisoner in Israel under a um, regime that hates them, people today who are living under unjust rules, unjust people, even ourselves. Jesus is saying, keep praying for my justice. It's coming. If an unjust judge can give it, the righteous God of all eternity can give it. Then he gives an example in verses 9 to 14 of two people who pray. One thinks that he's the cat's meow and tells God, here's what I've done. Here's how good I am. You know all this, Lord. And the other one stands at a distance and says, Lord, have mercy on me. The sinner the greatest of all sinners, please have mercy on me. That word mercy stands out to me. Then children come to Jesus, and whereas the disciples think that Jesus has no time for children, he said, stop. Mark's gospel says he rebukes them sternly. Don't tell those kids not to come to me. Let them come to me. For the attitude of these children is for, the, for all those who will inhabit the kingdom of God. People who come to me in humility and yet boldly, as a child does to his or her parents. Coming boldly, yet humbly. And then this very wealthy ruler comes up to Jesus and asks him, how can I have eternal life? Jesus tells him, the man walks away without eternal life. And so it bleeds right in to this story today, but right before the story of this blind man, Peter has asked Jesus in chapter 18, verse 28, we've left everything, what's going to be for us? Unlike that, that rich guy who walked away and decided, I'm not giving anything. I'm not going to give up my, rich, my riches and my wealth. I want to hold on to those. I want to hold on to earthly treasures and sacrifice and forfeit eternity. Peter says, Jesus, what about us? We gave up everything. And he says, yes, you did. Matthew's gospel says, you will rule, you will reign upon, over my people Israel in the regeneration, in the millennial kingdom of mine. And he tells there in verse 29, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Leaving that which is temporary to gain that which is eternal. And I asked you last week, I challenged you last week, not to go home and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor, but are you willing to do so? Do you realize that what we have here is just temporary? Whatever pleasures and comforts you're experiencing with wealth and health, that's fantastic. To God be the glory. He gave it. But it will go away. Are you willing to give it all up if asked? How would you know you're willing to give it up? Perhaps someone comes up and says, hey, I need some help. Perhaps then, wait, am I going to, do I want to get rid of anything? Maybe, as I said last week, if you can measure it by whether you can even give 10% of your income to the church of Jesus Christ. If you're unwilling to give 10%, 20% of your income, 1% for that matter, the answer is already clear to you. You are not willing to give up everything if you can't give up 1%, 5%, 10%. And so before he gets to the blind man, Jesus takes the 12 aside there in verse 31. After he's told Peter, look, 
you'll gain everything you give away in this life back 100 times over. Mark's gospel says you'll get 100 times over in the present time and eternal life in the next. Then he takes the 12 aside from the crowds. Because remember, there's a huge crowd following Jesus. And he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And I am going to set myself up on the throne and I'm going to be king. And we're all going to live happily ever after. What Bible am I using, right? If you don't have a Bible, you're going, hey, that sounds good to me. It's good to bring a Bible to a Bible church. You can make sure that I'm reading God's Word and not giving you my opinions. That's not what Jesus says. But that's exactly what the 12 thought Jesus was doing. We're going to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem, and he's going to set himself up as king. In fact, in other contexts, at this time, it was James and John, who are brothers, who sent their mother to ask Jesus, Jesus, can my son sit on your left and right when you come into your kingdom? They think he's going into Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. They think he's the Messiah, and they're right, aren't they? Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to Jerusalem. He's been saying it since chapter 9, verse 51, going to Jerusalem. He's coming to the end of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. And Jesus pulls him aside for the third time now. Let me show you. Turn back just to the left to chapter 9, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. You don't have to go anywhere except Luke's gospel. Chapter 9, verse 22. This is a couple of months prior. Where Jesus tells the disciples this. Remember, he calls himself the Son of Man which is a, a very specific designation for the final king of the world. We read about it in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the this son of man figure follows on the heels of the prophecies given to Daniel. Daniel receives a prophecy of what's going to happen in his day up to the very end of time. Daniel's prophecy does. Daniel hears about the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. And what follows the Roman Empire is one like a son of man who sets up his eternal kingdom. Those four kingdoms will all phase out as they did. Remnants of the Roman Empire remain. In Jesus' day, it was right there. So Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now the disciples would say, what? They didn't ask anything there. They don't, they don't even know what to say. The Son of Man, the prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, is not that He will die. It's that He will reign. Where does this come from? A few passages later in chapter 9, verse 44, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears, which is just another way of saying, guys, listen very carefully. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Note verse 45 there. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them so that they, were, so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this statement. Again, this is the second time. You're telling us the Son of Man? You're the Son of Man? You're going to go into Jerusalem and you're going to die? They don't understand it. And they don't want to ask Him about it. It looks like Jesus wants them to understand. Because He says, let this sink into your ears, guys. He doesn't say, now I know you're not going to get it. One day you will, don't worry. He says, let it sink into your ears. It's a, it's a seed He's planting. It's the second time. So when we get to our passage today in 18, this is the third time he says it. This shouldn't be catching them off guard. Behold, I'm in chapter 18, verse 31. We are going up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem, by the way, we're going to learn that they're in Jericho, which is 17 miles away. And they're going to climb. It's almost a 3,000-foot elevation. That's why it's always up to Jerusalem from Jericho. And he says, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Well, what are the things that are written about the Son of Man? The only thing written about the Son of Man is that he will follow the final world empire and he will reign as king for eternity. So what is he talking about? What else is in there? We're not given what he's talking about, at least with regard to the Son of Man. But there are other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, wonderful and beautiful passages that Jews today will not read. 
One of them is the passage, the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. Why wanted you read that? Because it tells them who their Messiah is, and the only one that fulfills that is Yeshua. We know him as Jesus. They don't like it because that passage means that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah, and they have been taught all of their lives that Jesus is not the Messiah. Ninety-plus percent of Jewish people today believe that Jesus of Nazareth was actually a Catholic, an Italian Catholic. I know this because I listen to their testimonies. I listen to the testimonies of Jews who have come to Christ. I always thought Jesus was a Catholic. Well, Jesus is definitely not a Catholic, not a Roman Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. He is the universal Messiah. He's the only Messiah, but he's not a Roman Catholic, and he's certainly not from Italy. He is a Jew from the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, of the line of Abraham, God's man of promise. He is the fulfilled Messiah. The Son of Man will reign for eternity. The servant of the Lord we read about in Isaiah chapters 42 up to around Isaiah 55 is this figure that fits Jesus of Nazareth to a T. I put some of the things there on your bulletin, I believe. Yeah, right there in number three, fulfilling prophecy, 3C. He's called the suffering servant. He has a humble upbringing with no expectation for success. Well, Jesus was from Nazareth, biggest hick town in Israel. He experiences sorrow and affliction. He suffers on behalf of his people. He's put to death after being denounced. He's resurrected, exalted above all rulers. In him, there is no violence, no deceit. He is sinless. What person ever in the history of the world fits the bill except Jesus of Nazareth? Answer, none. Conclusion, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. God became man to live our life and die our death, to identify with us, to show us the way. And Jesus is telling the disciples, guys, I've got to go to Jerusalem to finish my mission. Now, if you grew up perhaps in a liberal church, you probably never heard any of this. If you went to a liberal Bible college or seminary, or you've ever read a liberal commentary, they all say the same thing. The Jesus Seminar, uh, the uh, John Dominic Croissant and Company will say things like, this was all a big mistake on Jesus' part. He was deluded, didn't know what he was doing. It all came to a, uh, to a tragic end for the poor guy. And they will say, John Dominic Croissant of DePaul University said Jesus was crucified and he was buried in a shallow grave where wild dogs dug up his body and that's why no one could find him. That's the Jesus seminar. That's the scholars of the day, quote unquote. Jesus, we read through the Gospels, and by the way, in their version of the Gospels, they conveniently black this out. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And every moment he was doing it. John's gospel is even more specific. Every time someone comes to kill Jesus, Jesus says, it's not my time. The time is not yet. He knows the moment he must do this and be in a certain location. He knows the moment he's going to die. Right before he dies, what does he say? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Boom, he's done. Paid in full. He knows it. He even predicts, as we'll see here, when he's going to be resurrected from the grave. So just note that none of this happens by happenstance. And the disciples don't understand it. No one understands it. No one saw that the Messiah would come to town. This David-like warrior figure, the Messiah from Israel, is going to come in and completely obliterate our enemies. He's going to reign on the throne like David. We're all going to live happily ever after. And all that's going to happen, but not at the first coming. It wasn't meant for the first coming. Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. All the things are writ written in the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. By the way, Isaiah 53 speaks of what I just gave you there. Isaiah 55, I'm sorry, Psalm 55 speaks of a betrayer, one who betrays Jesus, who eats with him and betrays him. We know that as Judas Iscariot. Psalm 22 speaks of Jesus hanging on the cross in his crucifixion. The Old Testament is replete with prophecies of the coming Messiah. Jesus fills them, fulfills them all. And you say, well, I don't, somebody else has to fulfill it. Okay, find it. I dare you. I double dog dare you to 
find someone, really, because some skeptics have become Christians by trying to prove someone else fits these prophecies. Josh McDowell was one of them. If you know who Josh McDowell is. So it's going to be accomplished. Verse 32, Jesus says, For he, that is the Son of Man, that is him speaking of himself in the third person, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Now back in 9.22, we just read, Jesus said, I'll be handed over to the chief priests, and the, which would be the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Was well, Jesus contradicting himself? Well, if you know the story, Jesus comes into town. He's betrayed by Judas after being, he comes into Jerusalem. On Monday is his triumphal entry. On, on Thursday night, he's betrayed by Judas Iscariot. The Jewish scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin comes in. They arrest Jesus. That's Jesus' people. Although Luke says it's the Gentiles, back in 922, he said it'd be the chief priests. Of course, they could not implement the death penalty in Israel, which to them was stoning to death. They weren't in charge. Rome was in charge. So they had to turn him over to who? To the Gentiles. So both are right. They complement each other, hand it over to his own people, who will then hand him over to the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying, right here, it makes it even a little bit more dramatic. He'll be handed over, me, a Jewish man, the one that you know is the Messiah. I will be handed over to the Gentiles, the nations, and will be mocked. You know what it means to be mocked, right? Made fun of, scoffed at, mistreated spit upon you know there's no greater insult to a human being at least in that culture than to be spit upon Jesus is saying I will endure the worst treatment the worst humiliation that any man has ever endured at least in in the state of unfairness others have, have received it but it was fair upon their guilty lives Jesus we know is sinless and after they have scourged him, that's whipped him, beat him with, with leather thongs, with glass and bone and metal pieces in it, and lacerated his back, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, who says that about themselves? And it actually comes to pass. Oh, I have the answer. God in flesh. See, this is why he came. This is the third time he's telling his disciples that this is going to happen. You'd think by now they'd go, oh, I think we get it. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Why? Because there is no theology in the Old Testament of the Son of Man, the great eternal King, suffering and dying. Being raised from the dead. What? What is he talking about? You see, we don't understand things when we have a preconceived idea about the way things should be. We don't understand things when we have a preconceived idea of the way we think things should be. Giles told you that he went to, uh, to his mother's memorial service. And, uh, you know, and that's in, in London. And Giles preached the gospel in London. How many times do you think the gospel is preached in London, England? Well, it was preached recently by our brother. And he said, look, there's only two places you can go, heaven or hell. Of course, he had a Roman Catholic come up to him afterwards and go, oh, you missed the third. <laughs> the preconceived idea is there is a third place called purgatory. And because they have this idea, they cannot see the truth that that is false. It's nowhere in Scripture it just absolutely fuels the Roman Catholic system, funds their church. Because if you could scare people and tell them to give money to try to get others out of purgatory, that's how you get money to your church. It funds the whole system. Fuels, I should say. Or you tell somebody, Jesus was God in the flesh. God can't become flesh. A virgin can't have a child. Your preconceived idea is that there are no such thing as miracles. Well, the creation is here. How'd that get here? Even if you believe in evolution, which Todd prayed against, so anyone in here with evolutionary ideas, you're thinking, we've got to get out of here as soon as this is over, if not before. But even if you believe in evolution, you believe in miracles, because that is a greater miracle than anything I've ever heard of. The eyeball. 
which we'll look at here in just a second. Even Charles Darwin said, no, even Charles Darwin said, no way the eyeball is a product of evolution. How about that? It's hidden from them. They don't get it because they had a preconceived idea that that can't happen. How many preconceived ideas are in your head that keeps you from believing the truth? That miracles can't happen? Sure they do. That Jesus can't be the Messiah, as a Jewish person today would say? Give it another thought. Look at the evidence for it. So they're blinded by what they, they thought must happen, and we're going to miss what was going to happen. But here's the beauty. I'm going to turn over to Acts 2.23. You can follow with me. Or you can just It's going to be quick, so you can just listen to me if you like. Here's what Peter said. He didn't get it here in Luke 18.34, but here's what he says in Acts 2.23 after the Holy Spirit has come upon him. He starts preaching to the people that killed Jesus. I love this. To the people that killed Jesus, that murdered our Lord, he saw it. This is the same people he was so afraid of that when a little girl asked him, you're one of them, he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not. Calling down curses from heaven. May I be cursed of God if I know who Jesus of Nazareth is. He denied him. Now with the Spirit of God having flooded his soul, here's how he talks to the same people that murdered Jesus in Acts 2.23, 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Don't you love boldness? He knows he could die the same way. Guys, you nailed him to the cross, but he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now Peter gets it. His eyes were open. And so it stops there. And we get this next scene of a man who's blind. I would say in verse 34, the disciples are blind. The rich guy that we saw last week is blind. But we're going to meet a guy who is physically blind, who can actually see. It's quite the contrast. As Jesus is approaching, approaching Jericho in verse 35, a blind man. Luke only speaks of one. Matthew and Mark speak of two. There are two in this context. Luke is only going to bring about one, but there's no contradiction because you know where there's two? There's always one. No contradiction. Luke's just going to bring out the one guy. In fact, Mark tells us that this particular man's name was Bartimaeus. It's two words in in uh, Greek or Hebrew, you could say bar, meaning in, in Hebrew, is son of Timaeus, the son of Timaeus. It all fits together as Bartimaeus. And in fact, I think Mark brings it up because Peter is, the, the, uh, is speaking behind Mark, giving Mark the details of his gospel. Because Peter was the eyewitness, and the ch- early church uh, knew about Bartimaeus. He had come to know Christ. We think that he even followed him into Jerusalem after this time. May have been in the upper room. Um, and, and so the people would know in the early church, Mark is letting them know, here's how time, uh, Bartimaeus came to know Christ. Neither here nor there. Luke doesn't name him. But a blind man was sitting by the road begging. This is a great place to beg because this is the Passover. Jewish pilgrims are coming in from all over the country to Jerusalem. That's what you did annually to the Passover feast. And the, the road to Jerusalem came from the east out of Jericho. We were there just a couple of months ago. If you were on our trip, Jericho, it's a beautiful town. Um, uh, you can see uh, uh, there's two towns actually called Jericho. There's the ancient one, and then there's the new one built about a mile and a half away from it. And so as Luke says, as Jesus was approaching Jericho in verse 35, Matthew and Mark say, as Jesus was leaving Jericho. Sounds like a contradiction. But if you're leaving one town, you're getting to the next. Contradiction fixed, settled, moving on. So if you want help financially or otherwise, you're going to be on that road to Jerusalem. And so he is. And by the way, the climate in Jericho is apparently very nice. I mean, I've been there. It's nice when I was there. But if it's snowing in Jerusalem... It can be warm 15, 17 miles away in Jericho. It's a city of palms. A place where they had a balsam tree and they used the, the balsam uh, or the, the juices of this balsam tree to aid people who were blind. I don't know if it worked, 
But they were aided there. So he's probably there for that reason. He's sitting by the road begging. Lots of people coming by. Now hearing a crowd going by, he, that's the blind man, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that's where Jesus is from. He is Jesus of Nazareth. The crowd doesn't say the long-form Messiah. They don't say the Son of Man. Jesus of Nazareth. What's the hubbub, folks? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, this man, blind as he was, had no ability to make his way around the countryside looking for Jesus. Perhaps he had wanted Jesus to come by his neck of the woods. If I was blind, I certainly would have, because Jesus has healed all of Israel to this point. Anyone who can make their way to Jesus has been healed, whether they believe in him or not. This man remains blind. Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he called out. It's like this surge of energy goes through him. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The other gospels speak of him speaking in this great cry, cry, and he will cry out even louder when people tell him to hush in a minute. But he starts yelling. That's how you're heard above the crowd. He's really not worried about embarrassing himself. He's not real cool. He's got... No eyes to see. He has no money. He sits by begging. I mean, what have you got to lose? If Jesus of Nazareth is coming by, I'm going to cry out. And he does. And he calls him Jesus, son of David. Folks, that is so significant. He could have called him anything. He could have called him good teacher, like the rich young ruler did. Rabbi, or just teacher. Hey, you. Guy I've heard a lot of great things about. No, he calls him son of David. This man knows who Jesus is. This is a messianic title. Why? How do we know that? Well, we go all the way back to to Genesis. God pulled out a man, called a man out of his pagan idolatry. His name was Abram. He gave him another name, Abraham. Exalted father Abram to father of many, Abraham. Which is strange because he didn't have any kids and his wife couldn't have any children. Why would God call a man who has no children by a barren woman through a barren woman? How do you have children through a barren woman? You don't. But he called him father of many because this is the prophecy of Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have more children than you can count. Look up at the stars they have. If you can count those stars God told Abraham, you can count the children you're going to have. Look down at the grains of sand on the seashore. If you can count those grains, you can count your children. Really? Through her? Yep, through that 90-year-old woman. So Sarah has a baby when she's 90. That baby's name was Yitzhak. Not Yitzhak Rabin, but Yitzhak, Isaac, yes. Another lady around that time, prior, her name was Hagar. She had a son named Ishmael. Ishmael was 13 years older than Isaac. Abraham thought that by impregnating a woman from Egypt, he could have the child of promise, and become this father of many. God did not ordain that. And that group of people, the descendants of that union, are the same people called Hamas today, who terrorize God's people based on Abraham's faux pas. But he has Isaac. And this is the one whom God puts the promise in. What he promised Abraham, he passed to Isaac, not to Ishmael. That's why that land belongs to Israel. That war, no matter what it may be today or tomorrow, will be won by Israel. You know it because God said it. God promised Abraham, land, seed, and a blessing. That land is yours. The seed that I promise will come through you, and you will be blessed for eternity. And when you take Abraham's offspring, he's got Isaac. Isaac has two kids, twins, Esau and Jacob. God does not bless Esau. He blesses Jacob and renames him Israel. Israel has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the people today we call Israel and the Jews. They are a Hebrew people which predated the Jewish race which presided Israel, they became Israel. After their, their exile, they came back, and the only ones they knew were the people from Judah called Jews. There's your history in, in Israel history. Those Jewish people, birthed down through the centuries, a thousand years after Abraham, was a man named David, Israel's first great king. Not the first king, Saul's first king. 
And God took David aside and he promised him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, no, chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, he promised him, here's the promise I'm making with you, David. Kind of piggybacking on what he had said a thousand years prior to Abraham. Abraham was given land, seed, and blessing. To David, he said, I'm going to give you a kingdom, a house, and a throne. A kingdom, a house, and a throne. Your throne will be forever. And one of your descendants will sit on it forever. And his son was Solomon. But Solomon wasn't the fulfillment of that prophecy. Because Solomon's dead. Solomon's not reigning forever. And so a thousand years later, a woman named Mary is impregnated by the Spirit of God and births a child. And so when you read Matthew 1 and Luke 3, you get these long genealogies that all go back to Abraham. They come through David, and they show that this one through Mary is the promise that God gave to Abraham, that God made to David. He is the one that will sit on the throne. In fact, in Luke's gospel, um, when the angel is telling Mary in Luke chapter 1, he tells Mary in verse 32 explaining to her what she's going to have. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That throne David reigned from was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital city of God's promised land. In fact, if you want to look again, look back to the left in Matthew chapter um, 25, verse 31. This speaks of the second coming of Jesus, calling him the Son of Man. I'm already there, so just listen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What God promised David? House, throne, kingdom. Jesus the Messiah in the flesh from Nazareth, God of all gods will return and sit on that throne. That's the Son of Man. These guys don't get it up here in verse 34. The 12 don't get it. It's hidden from them now because they had a preconceived idea. This blind guy who sees nothing, who hasn't walked for three and a half years with Jesus, He knows exactly who Jesus is. Jesus, son of David. In other words, I know who you are. I know you're the offspring of Mary. I know that you are the fulfillment of that promise God gave to David a thousand years ago. Have mercy on me. Isn't that great? Don't make me king. Don't give me a lot of wealth. Just have mercy on this poor sap. Reminds me just a couple of passages earlier where that, that, uh, that righteous tax collector in chapter 18, verse 13, the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus, son of David. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Hey, Jesus. And he's yelling it. This is not a, a low-tone conversation. It made everyone uncomfortable. Is it would make you uncomfortable if I started yelling it. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded it to be brought to him. No, I, I missed a few, didn't I? I'm in verse 39. Those who led him, who led the way, that's a whole group of people leading Jesus, were sternly telling him to be quiet. Hush. What is that annoying person yelling over the, the murmur of the crowd? Tell him to hush. Sternly telling him to be quiet. What does he do? I'm sorry. I certainly didn't mean to offend. No. You know people like this. If you're a teacher, right, of of little children, you tell them to be quiet, what do they do? He kept crying all the more. He just got louder. Kept crying. The tense of that verb is he is not going to shut up. He is going to give it everything he's got to get the attention of the son of David. Wouldn't you? Or would you be busy? Maybe try to save face. Ooh, I don't want to, you know, I'm on a first date here with this good-looking girl, and if I start yelling out, she might think I'm uncool, be uncool. You see, there are just not enough people in the world today who are willing to drop 
the facade and cry out to the Messiah. Jesus, I know what you know. I'm a wretch. I know that I'm a wretch. I want you to know that I know. I am a filthy, wicked sinner, Lord. I know it. Will you please save my wretched soul? Amen. You might come to the church. You might walk down to the front and talk to the pastor or an elder of the church and say, look, I've been living a lie. And I'm tired of trying to be cool and try to save face and living this life I'm living. Cry out like this man does. He kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And there's verse 40, and Jesus stopped. I always try to put myself in Jesus' shoes here. Jesus has just given a very somber prophecy. I'm going to walk the next 17, 18 miles to Jerusalem uphill. I know where I'm going. Jesus knows where he's going. He's going to be heralded as the king when he walks in and killed four days later by the same people that heralded him as the king. But not just killed, not shot, not a quick, slow, painless death. He knows he's going to be tortured. He knows he's going to be betrayed. You ever been betrayed by a friend? Let me tell you, it's painful. I don't know of any other pain that's worse than being betrayed by a friend, unless it's friends, plural. He knows this is going to happen. And then he knows he's going to be denied by his best buddy, Peter. He knows he's going to be whipped and mocked and scorned by the people of Israel, whom he is from. People he came to save. He knows he's going to endure the torture of that cross with a lacerated back for at least six hours. Laughed at and scorned, buck naked on the cross. The worst shame a human being could endure. Under a situation by which the Romans had perfected in their ability to torture people on that cross. If he was anything like Lance Waldy, he would say, I don't have time for this. I am tired. I have been tugged at. I have been disbelieved. No one's listening to me. I just need to get to my hotel room. Tell that guy to leave me. Just somebody else needing me. Aren't you glad Lance isn't the Messiah? But not Jesus. You see, he's never too busy. Never too busy to stop and grant mercy to those who call out for him. I love that. That's our God. And Jesus stopped. While everyone is making fun of the blind man, why don't you just hush? Jesus commanded that he be brought to him. Let me get myself together here. And so he brings him to him. And he questioned him. Jesus doesn't ask dumb questions. It sounds like a dumb question. I mean, if you were standing there looking at a blind person and you had the ability to heal them, would you say, what do you want? I think Jesus, even though this man couldn't look into Jesus' eyes, I think he could hear the smile on Jesus' face when he said, so what is it you want me to do for you? You know, you can hear a smile. A bit of sarcasm. So what exactly... Bartimaeus, is it that you would like me to do for you? <laughs> and he said, Lord, don't miss that. He doesn't say good teacher, Rabboni, Rabbi. He just says, Lord, which is to say, I know that you are God. That's what the word means, God. Kyrie. Every time the word for God's name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H, it's designated in the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, every time Yahweh is translated, it's used the word Kyrie, Lord. He's already called him Son of David. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said, well, I don't know about that. Let's see how long you can persistently pray. Let's see how much money you can give. 
See how many good things you might do. Let me take off my Benny Hinn jacket and slap you with it. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Look back at Luke 4.18. When Jesus came out of... That's not a good cliche. When Jesus revealed who he is in Nazareth where he was raised, he read from Isaiah's prophecy in Luke chapter 14, verse 18. Reading from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, he said, the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is, the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's the blind man, isn't it? He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Is that not what he's doing right here? He's been doing that throughout his ministry. And incidentally, this is the last miracle Jesus performs until his resurrection, to give sight to the blind. Who ever heard of giving sight to the blind? No one ever gave sight to the blind. Jesus said he would. Jesus did. Receive your sight. No hocus pocus. No thunderstorm. No big bang. No drum roll. Receive your sight. Look at verse 43. Immediately he regained his sight. But don't miss that second phrase in verse 42. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Made you well is an English translation. It's not any good. Because the Greek word is, your faith has saved you. Using the Greek word sozo, where we get the study of soteriology, the study of salvation. He wasn't just made well, he was saved. This is the word used in the New Testament for salvation. What saved him? His faith. What always saves? Faith. How did Abraham get saved? He believed God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham, you're 100 years old. Your wife's 90. You're going to have kids that you're not going to be able to count. Okay, I believe you, Lord. He reckoned it to him that day as, as righteousness, as salvation, faith. How did Old Testament saints get saved without Jesus? Faith in the coming Messiah. Faith in God. How do Old Testament, New Testament saints get saved after Jesus? Faith. It's always by faith alone, and it's always in Christ alone. Alone, apart from works, apart from anything you can do. Did this guy do anything? Did he say, Jesus, let me contribute to your ministry? Let me do this, let me do a backflip for you in front of everyone? No. He just said, I want to see. Lord, I want to see. Here's who you are, Lord, you're Lord. I want to regain my sight. Here's my problem. Receive your sight. Faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight. You know, you can't fake seeing after being blind, can you? You could fake. You know, if you go to a Benny Hinn concert and say, well, I've got a, a sore lower back, you can go awake and think, I feel pretty good. I've been healed until the next day. You can't fake being blind and then seeing, can you? Immediately, he regained his sight. This is what happens. Not just his, his physical sight, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, according to the Apostle Paul, that the God, the lowercase g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, meaning Satan. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. This man regains his physical sight and has the blinders, of course, I think they're already, already removed, by him crying out to Jesus as Lord and the Son of David. He regained his sight. And what you do, the first fruit after coming to Christ is following Christ. And he began following him. Mark's gospel says he got up after Jesus called for him. In fact, the crowd said, hey, he's calling for you. Get up. He jumps up. He only has one possession, and that's a mat. Leave that. That's no problem. Jumps up from that, going to Jesus where he's saved. That rich guy couldn't leave everything. The poor guy... You can have it. What a contrast. 
What an amazing contrast. Where the rich think that they have everything, and they're just trying to add Jesus, eternal life, to everything else they have, and being able to serve the world, their wealth, and maybe Jesus along the way. Where Jesus says you can't serve both God and and wealth. This guy jumps up, leaves it all, regains his sight, goes following after Jesus. No doubt he went into Jerusalem with him, glorifying God. That's what the fruit of salvation is. And here's another fruit of salvation. People see it and they take note. When all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. In Mark and Matthew's account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. And they're very similar. Matthew and Mark speak of James and John having come to Jesus just prior to this incident with Bartimaeus and said, had their mom ask them, and they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's how Mark phrases it. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that how we all come to Jesus? Here, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's pretty bold. That is, you might as well say it. That's what you want. He knows. We want to sit at your left and your right. Jesus said, that's not mine to give. My guess, and it's just a guess, is that when Jesus asked this guy, what do you want me to do for you? I think he was looking at James and John. Wouldn't that be interesting? They had just come to him and said, we want, for you to, us, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And they wanted this selfish thing. We want to sit on your left and your right in your kingdom because you're going up to Jerusalem and we want to sit on your left and right. We want to be number two, number three men. In your kingdom. They're thinking about themselves. High and lifted up. When Jesus asked this blind guy, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder if he was looking over at them. That's kind of a shame thing. Yeah, this man wanted to see. I guess you could call that selfish. I want to see, Lord. I want you to display me and all your glory and all of your grace and all of your mercy. Display. Take me to Jerusalem with you and let me sit in your right hand now. I just want to see. I just want to see, Lord. You see, if if you can't see, all you want to do is see, right? If you break your leg, all you want is to have your leg back. If you lose the ability to, to walk, your only prayer request is usually, I just want to walk again. If you lose your house, Lord, can I just get a good, solid cardboard box? I just want to see. I think Jesus could have easily said, you see far more than you do. And you think you do. Note number five on your bulletin. And I'll close. Contrary to the rich, the needy cry out to Jesus. The rich don't see their need. The needy do. When you see that you're blind. Isn't that an ironic statement? When you see that you're blind. When you see that you can see the world and you can make sense of the world. You can read books and, and, and see things that God has made. Or maybe you think evolution made it. When you see it. One day you realize, I don't get all this. I may see it, but I don't get it. Lord, I'm blind. You may set out to be a good person. Lord, I'm trying to be good, but it just I can't get over the, the hump. I'm not quite good enough. When you see that, or when you think, Lord, if I can just get all these riches, I'll be happy. If I can marry this woman, I'll be happy. If I can have these kids, if this person could be healed, I'll be happy. And then you get it, it doesn't bring what you think. You begin to see there's a God-shaped hole in my soul of which the only thing will fit it is God. The needy, the people that know this, they're the ones that cry out to Him. The rich go away. I got it all. I got this, Lord. I'll take care of it. Those who know Jesus as King receive His mercy just like this blind man. The others with their preconceived ideas were a little bit slower to it and didn't get it. This guy did. And finally, believers cannot be dissuaded by unbelievers. I just put that down. I thought, I, just, I love the fact that he just got louder. Hey, will you shut up? No. I'm going to get louder. In fact, I encourage you, don't leave here today until God answers you. Don't let yourself leave this place of worship until God has answered you. Cry out to Him. 
cry out to Him. Don't, there's a certain mood that goes on after a worship service. You know it well. It goes away when you turn on the muski. Usually because someone got in your way. You might have come to church this morning with a certain mood. When you saw the marathon, you lost that mood. <laughs> Did a funeral the other day of a young man who was 23 years old and he died. And I shared the gospel. And there's a, there's a, a sweet zone in there. With the people that don't know Christ, and I knew there were many there that didn't know Christ. There's a sweet spot in which they, they're being influenced on a horrible day, under horrible circumstances, and they're hearing the good news. And you only have them for a short time because they get out and they go have lunch and they forget it. Don't let the moment pass, you unbelievers in our midst. You are blind. We closed that funeral the other day with John Newton's Amazing Grace, which only a Christian can sing. Everyone else is going to be offended by it. Offended because you have to say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No one believes they're a wretch unless you've come to know that Jesus is Lord and you fall short of His glory. That's the only people singing that song with any gusto. So let me tell you, whether you believe it or not, you are a wretch. You are worthy only of the fires of hell. Even those of us who are saved are still only worthy of the fires of hell. But by God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, God has wiped our slate clean and continues to do so with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Son of Man, the servant of the Lord, God in flesh. Believe on Him. Believe in Him. Confess He is Lord with your mouth and believe it in your heart. And Romans 10, 9 says, and you shall be saved. And you shall be saved. No other caveats. Confess Jesus with your tongue as Lord. Believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead and you shall be saved. I stand here at the end. We will close our service. I am always down here at the front. I will greet, I will pray. I will answer any question you have if you want to know about the God who brings salvation because I am bursting at the seams to tell you more. I just run out of time at this time. Let's pray. Lord, you are the creator God of heaven and earth. You are so far beyond our imagination. Yet you have given us a glimpse in your creation that everyone can see and we as believers you have given us you your spirit we can read your word and fellowship with you your inerrant infallible eternal word that will never fade away thank you for those here who do not know that use this sweet time Bring them to know Jesus as only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you leave today. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.